Hi everyone! Before we get into this week's episode, we want to issue a content warning. The chapters we're covering include topics of rape, so feel free to skip this episode if it's triggering for you. Now, on to the show. Welcome to The Pemberley Podcast, a podcast where we discuss Jane Austen adaptations, now covering Recipe for Persuasion by Sonali Dev. I'm Yolanda Rodriguez. And I'm Jillian Davis. We are proud partners of the Frolic Podcast Network, a community made up of your favorite voices in all of Romancelandia and beyond. Keep up with us on Twitter and Instagram at The Pemberley, and you can email us at thepemberleypodcast at gmail.com. Welcome back, everyone. We will dive right into what we're reading or watching. I can go first. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about how Sarah Snook has been cast as Anne Elliot in the latest adaptation of Persuasion that they're making as a film. And she's most well known for starring in a very popular HBO show called Succession that I've heard people talking about nonstop for months. But it was truly the persuasion aspect of it where that pushed me to be like you know what maybe i should just check this out i have also heard of the show i know that matthew mcfaden is in it aka mr darcy he plays her husband how crazy is that oh what is the show about i actually don't know (laughs) you know and i feel like they do a really good job of like not really telling you what it is but showing you the Hmm. drama it's very it's a very like honest and sort of cutthroat look at this family they own a media empire they're basically like the murdochs where it's just like they own news networks and channels and stations and newspapers and themes parks and like film adaptations like uh, so many media they're just like an empire and their father logan roy is the man who started it all he's a very manipulative guy who gets his way every time and he's got four kids i mean they all kind of have their own issues but it's basically king lear-esque in their struggle for not only power in the company but also their struggle to earn their father's love his love for them is tied to the success that they bring to the family and to the company. You know, they want to separate it, but they don't know how. I will say one of the main things I know this sh- about this show is that Nicholas Braun is in it, who plays, yes. is it Cousin Greg? Cousin Greg. Actually, yes. he's, what's hilarious is I've seen, so Brian Cox is the actor who plays the patriarch Logan Roy. And I saw an interview with him on some talk show where he was like, I, a lot of the time I'll call Greg by his, um, his real name, Nicholas, because they're the same guy. (laughs) They have the same personality. What are you watching, Yolanda? I'm currently watching, well, I just finished this show. It's called Julie and the Phantoms. It's on Netflix. Basically, it's all about if you're into boy bands and you want like a little ghost twist to it, this show is perfect for you. Okay. So Julie Molina is a teenager in Los Angeles going to high school and it's been a year since her mom has passed away and she's still processing that and trying to work through it and her relationship to music is so tied to her relationship with her mom and so she's been having difficulty like finding her way back to music through some magic or somehow basically um this boy band in the 90s went through like this semi weird and tragic accident where three out of four of them died the night of like this major concert that they were 
supposed to perform at the Orpheum Theater. Somehow they are connected to Julie because the house that Julie lives in and, and that loft is actually where the band used to practice. So she finds a, an old box with one of their CDs, she plays it, and they come back, not to life, but like they they come back as ghosts, and only she can see them. And what she discovers though, and what they all discover, is that when they play music together, everyone can see them. So if she's performing on a stage, suddenly everyone can see them playing with her. So she kind of plays it off as like, oh yeah, they're uh, holograms, and um, you won't get it, because it's all like science and algorithms and math stuff and whatever, <laughs> and people believe her. So it's really endearing, it's really sweet, I really enjoyed it. It's directed by Kenny Ortega, who is known we for- We love high- Kenny Ortega. Yes, <laughs> who's known for High School Musical, he's known for many musicals, and being the choreographer of many different concert tours and musicals and, and the like. That's very amazing, because we know that you are a confirmed fangirl of boy bands, especially yes. the likes of the Jonas Brothers and One Direction and such. Exactly. So this kind of played right into something I'm interested in. <laughs> amazing. I'll have to check that out. Let's dive right into our episodes. So previously on Recipe for Persuasion, Rico conspired to get Ashna to play soccer for the first time in forever, and they finally had a normal, honest conversation. And we see that there is still clearly a romantic connection between them. So let's dive right into chapter 29. These next two chapters are from Shobi's point of view. And we open on her and Mina having a conversation where Mina's basically trying to convince Shobi to stay with her instead of Ashna because at this point she might be crowding her a bit. Shobi had come to California to finally be able to have like these honest conversations with Ashna, but it's like they just haven't had the right time. And we actually also find out that the Padma Shri ceremony is like a month away. So it's a little bit like time is ticking. Like there's only so many weeks left that she can have this honest conversation with her daughter but at the same time her daughter has never been busier and is is like just exhausted every time she comes home so to have the emotional space to also have these conversations is not very likely the whole point of going to the bay area and staying with ashna was to prove how serious she was about making amends you know i I think that she imagined things would have progressed better if they were and she's just sort of like well if it hasn't happened by now is it even going to happen happen. Omar is the one who is encouraging her to stay. The one thing when she's talking to Omar about it is that he even brings up the point like, well, has she asked you to leave? She hasn't, honestly, because I think that's where that's where Shobi is. She's like, why should I stay? Why am I here? Like, if I'm not getting through to her, it's a good point. She hasn't asked her to just leave. And I wonder why Ashna honestly hasn't done that if she's feeling so overwhelmed. Kind of a very, like, teenager-y thing to do to be like, get out of my room, mom, you know, like, but I think too, Ashna recognizes, like, no, my mom came all this way, so she is serious, but I don't think she's kind of ready to acknowledge that within herself. In my head, it's more like, I think Ashna hasn't asked her to leave 
leave because she thinks it's only a matter of time before she leaves herself. Yeah. It like she'll be out of here soon enough. Like she's not gonna stick it out. She she's not capable of it. I, I feel like Ashna only would ask her to leave if they got in some kind of huge fight, which they have gotten in a huge fight because she's dangled the deed of curried dreams over her head and she still didn't ask her to leave. I guess that's a good point of why she hasn't just kicked her mom out of like, well, if I kick her out, then she could take the restaurant away from me. So at the same time, she's also balancing like this estranged relationship, but also still trying to keep the restaurant. So it's kind of a weird balance. Like, I don't think she's happy that Shobi's there, but she's also like, well, she has to be here. Otherwise, I lose everything. Yeah. Mina says something I think very astute. She says, Ashna has always had too vulnerable a heart. That's been the problem. She feels everyone's pain and internalizes it and wants to take it away. I think the reason she's had such a hard time with you is she didn't know what to do with yours. She finds your rage at the world too daunting. She blames herself for it. Shobi is aware of like how upset Ashna gets after they talk. She she just feels like every time she talks to Ashna, she's like, I just make her more sad and I make her angry. Even though she wants to have those conversations, she's like, I don't want to make my daughter sad too. Because she recognizes that every time she tries to talk to Ashna, make amends in some way or like dig into their past, she gets angry. And I think she's tired of trying to bring up the past and being shut down immediately. I mean, Ashna's not a kid anymore. She's a 30 year old woman, but she's still her daughter it's not just like something you can dismiss of like oh she's just a kid she just doesn't know how to talk about her emotions yet i mean she definitely doesn't know how to talk about her emotions but i feel like there's something about the fact that she's a woman now like her own woman that makes it difficult to patronize her feelings she's also trying to figure out like how much she needs to tell ashna like she's talking through this with mina she's like what are the key things that my like that ashna needs to know For her to understand my perspective, right? Because, like, even though Ashna heard all their arguments when they were younger, like, she didn't have the full context of, like, what happened and how she was treated. When she told Brahm that she wanted the divorce, it was kind of shortly after that, that's when Brahm had killed himself. In Shobi's mind, she's like, I'm responsible. Or, like, she didn't think that he would have that kind of response to the news of, like, yes, I want this divorce for sure. To Ashna's perspective, you know, we don't, again, fully know the details of what was going on there from her and her father's relationship. But the fact that he called her selfish, just like her mother, who knows like what the timing was of that, right? Because maybe it was Shobi told him, I want the divorce. Ashna said something to him, which then made him say, you're selfish, just like your mother, which then drove him to make the decision he made. So it was kind of a combination of different things in his life that he felt like he couldn't go on anymore. But that's one thing where like Shobi is worried about telling her like, yeah, I asked for this and that's what he did. Because then she's going to be like, oh no, Ashna's already blamed me so for so much of what's gone wrong in her life. She's only going to blame me for this even more. So rather than having that close relationship with her, she's only going to be, you know, she might completely cut me out of her life. What's crazy about this is I don't believe it is either woman's fault, but both of them feel so deeply at fault for his suicide. I I feel like we see just how fragile his, like he's so fragile ego, fragile emotions, like can't stand not being loved. And he tried so hard to control both of them for as long as he could. 
and they both tried to break away and have their own lives. And as a result, he ended his life. And it's just so much to deal with. You know, if they had been able to talk to each other after that happened, maybe they would have been able to heal together too. Neither one of them have fully healed, you know. In some ways, Shobi has been able to find comfort in Omar and move on and move past it and kind of forget about Brahm. But Ashna is kind of faced with it every single day. She goes to work in, at Curry Dreams. And the fact that both of them are unaware of how guilty they feel about it or how, you know, Shobi feels more guilty about the fact that Ashna had to deal with that too. There was an opportunity where maybe if they had a, a moment where they had talked to each other and processed it together and understood each other's perspective, this wouldn't be happening years later, but here's where we are because they both don't realize how similar they are. The fact that they have compartmentalized so much of their lives to each other even. It is interesting that like Shobi wants to get to know Ashna so much more and, and wants her to open up to her. And yet Shobi herself can't open up to Ashna and let her know about like this great love in her life. And she worries that, you know, sharing that positive thing will only cause more guilt on herself of like, oh no, like I, I got to move on and my daughter is still stuck. For sure. And I feel like what makes that rift even greater, I mean, we've talked so much over the course of this book about how similar Shobi and Ashna's love stories are, like forbidden love stories and how they were both forced to give up their love for the path that was chosen for them. But this is where we get into the biggest differences between Shobi and Ashna, because the difference between them is Shobi was forced to marry Brahm. And what we get into, I mean, because to Ashna, she's kind of like, you know, she blames her mom for the divorce. She blames her mom for leaving them. She blames her mom for just giving up on them. And what she doesn't know that we get into in this episode is that Shobi and Brahm never had a consensual sexual encounter. Ashna had to deal. She doesn't know that. She takes a lot of the blame for it. But Shobi's just been shielding her for so many years about how ugly her father was to her, what a horrible person and husband he was, because she wanted her, like, I think on some level, she still wanted her to love her father. And I don't think she would have if she knew just how terrible he was to Shobi. She's still undecided, like, do I tell her this? Do I not? They start to use like certain language of like, well, you know, she's fragile, and like, she can only take so much. And, and even Mina is like saying that too. the thing that, uh, Shobi says it's like she's not like Trisha or Nisha she doesn't have their spirit and then that's when Mina like holds up her hand to stop Shobi because behind them is Ashna who has been standing there we don't know how much she heard but it seems like she heard a significant amount I mean when I first so, read this I thought she just heard the she's weak she's fragile thing and I was like same. oh no her feelings are hurt but I feel like Ashna didn't even hear that because she did hear the part where Shobi said, your father raped me and I stayed with him for 18 years because he threatened to take you away from me. Like, that's just something that Ashna, for all the listening she did to her parents' fight, she never saw that happening. Which is a good thing, but it sucks because she's already been shouldering so much of their problems 
and she completely blows up and she does exactly what Mina said she does and she internalizes it more and she's like, so that's why you hate me, mom. That's why you left me because I'm the ugly reminder of, like, I'm the worst part of your marriage. And what's horrible about that is it's the opposite. Ashna was the best part of her marriage. It was the only good thing that came from being married to Brahm, but Ashna's just so hurt by this. And on top of that, too, it's like Ashna seeing Mina there, she feels betrayed by Mina, too. Throughout her whole life, Mina has been there as like this motherly figure who's been on her side, who's been fighting for her. But then she realizes like, oh, you must see me as weak, too. Or like, do you see me as weak? Does everyone always just tiptoe around me thinking like I'm just gonna explode at any moment? At least to to Ashna, like Mina had always been like the safe person to go to and, and to to turn to for advice or strength or anything. And now suddenly she thinks she's weak. Like, that's gotta hurt, too. Ashna feels like her whole world is crumbling down around her because it's like, one, her father isn't the man who she thought he was. She's now being aware of, like, the full trauma that her mother went through. And the fact that she realizes, oh, everyone treats me differently. And she's just, like, hyper aware now. She's like, oh, does everyone treat me this way because they think, like, I can't handle it. And because Ashna, for her whole life, she's been like, no, I'm strong. Like, I can handle anything. I can do things on my own. And she's like, oh, no one thinks that of me, though. Well, what's also horrible is she just keeps blaming herself because she says, how can it not be my fault? I'm the product of of God, Mom. You stayed in marriage like that for me. Then it is my fault. And then I think Shobi says something very poignant. She's like, it's Bram's and my fault. Mine, because I didn't know how else to do this. Because I wavered when I should have been stronger. So Shobi's admitting weakness, like, but like, she came, she's coming from a very vulnerable place. And his because, well, because he was him. And society's fault for teaching him that it was his right. Because he was a man and a prince. And God knows what other unearned privilege. This chapter ends with... Ashna just kind of backing away from both of them and she just needs some time to process what she's heard and understand like what does this mean for her going forward too. There was no delicate way to break the image of Brahm. Like there was no possible way that she could have delivered this news any better even though this was an accident and this wasn't like the ideal way to deliver it. Like there was no ideal way to deliver this news. It sucks that this is the way it happened, but it had to happen. I mean, even Mina is like, at least now you can put the lies behind you, which is like a big step that they'll be able to take now. I feel like so many of their problems are because these issues are have gone unsaid for such a long time. I mean, certainly, I mean, we're, we don't really see Ashna's point of view immediately. We jump, uh, the next chapter is more Shobi's point of view, and it's a flashback to when she first got pregnant with Ashna. But... You know, I can't imagine what's going to happen in the in the chapter where she processes and has to remove her father from the pedestal that he's been on in her mind because she didn't think he was capable of doing these things because he was always like a jolly, lovable guy who and his only flaw was that he was an alcoholic. And we don't see really from her point of view other than like soiling himself and disappointing everyone and mismanaging the restaurant like we don't see what alcoholism did to her parents' marriage, and she just refuses to blame anyone other than herself for being the source of these issues. So Shobi and 
Ashna have hit this rock bottom, and there's literally nowhere else for them to go but up, thankfully. So I feel like this is finally like breaking that barrier of what they've always been trying to reach, and now they can go up from that. But right now, yeah, it's it's not pleasant for anyone. It's not going to be good for a while. At least like there is a way out of this, I think, you know? Absolutely. And I, and I like the way that you put that where like the only good thing about Rock Bottom is that the only way you can go is up. With that, I think that we can dive into chapter 30, which is also a really tough chapter to talk about because it's a flashback episode where we do see Shobi and Mina when she was pregnant with Ashna. Basically, um, it starts off with um, she thinks of all the excuses that Brahm would use if she were to report him for domestic rape, which is like, I was drunk. I don't remember anything. She's lying. She's my wife. And so they're basically at an abortion clinic right now. And what's horrible is that the doctor thinks they're there because she's pregnant with a girl. But I guess she's like, no, I totally get it. Like, plenty of people come through here when they find themselves pregnant with girls. She kind of says it casually, too. She's just, she's got a smile to her face. She's like, it's a girl, right? Like, I know this. Like, you probably know this. And it's sadly, like, this thing that girls are devalued, especially if they're the firstborn rather than having a boy. So that's sort of what this this uh, worker there thinks. She's like, oh, yeah, I've seen this. Don't worry. Like, <laughs> you're not the first one, sadly. That kind of clicks for something in Shobi because, you know, she came in here with the support of Mina, determined to do what she was going to do. But now she's like, what if it's a girl? And what if I, I make this decision to go through with this, especially when herself and Mina are, are two women who have grown up feeling unloved too, or like have felt rejected? Like, does she want to do that to this potential baby? And that's when she comes to the decision. Like, there's nothing really said between them, but she decides to just get up and they both walk out. And she's like, you know, from there, she kind of decides, like, I'm never gonna make, like, this baby ever feel devalued in any way. I'm gonna make sure, like, she feels empowered and is can make her own decisions, even from a young age. I feel like what's so fascinating about this, one of the complaints that Ashna has had about her mother is she thinks she's really overdoing the female empowerment crusade, you know, especially because it's su become such a hot topic of conversation in recent years that she's just like whatever my mom's all about empowerment but not really because she's telling me that my dreams don't mean anything and she doesn't listen when really shobi was just so deeply affected by the fact that she went to get this abortion it's almost like the idea that it could be a girl and it could have been a boy like she doesn't have that information yet she just knows that she's pregnant i doubt that she's been to a doctor about it yet this idea she wants to prove that women can do more than just get married, that they can get their education, that they can pursue their dreams, that they can do whatever she wants. She wants to give this baby the shot that she never had. Which like then once Ashna is born, it feels like, you know, Shobi has been someone who's been incredibly strong throughout everything she's gone through. And it's not like she's ever given up her own fight, but it feels like once Ashna is born, she kind of regains more of that fight and more of like, you know what? Now that she's born, I'm going to make sure like she has the life that she's meant to have. First up, I need to divorce Brahm. And second, I want to play cricket again because that was something she loved doing too. She was passionate about it. 
And she's like, I'm going to find my way back into the things that make me happy too. And that, uh, you know, I can lead a life that my daughter would be proud of because I'm also pursuing my dreams. And I really like that she got that fight back when she had Ashna because what we basically spent a lot of last chapter and others talking about is that Brahm used this baby to gain control of Shobi's life. I mean, I think she did a good job given her circumstances trying to like forge her own path, but she only had that when she was out of the country because as soon as she was like in the house with Brahm, that's when he would threaten to take Ashna away from her and separate them and do this to her and accuse her of that. You know, in a lot of ways, I feel like she lost power from like having Ashna because... Suddenly she had this precious thing that she couldn't live without and he knew that and he exploited that. And so it's nice to hear that she was equally empowering the fact that she wanted to give Ashna options and she wanted to give her a good life. She kept fighting for that because she basically uses the Rajay name to start her foundation and she sees more than just herself and Ashna. Like she does like her experience as like suffering from domestic abuse and bringing a baby that she didn't expect into this world is not unique to just her. And she sees that. And so she tries to really help other girls and women escape those situations through her foundation and her sports. You know, we see the difference between how each of them use the Rajay name. Brahm uses it in a way to, you know, in his situation, there's other people who are covering up for him and are using the power of the Rajay name to cover any mistakes he's made. In using Ashna against Shobi, really, he's still using the Rajay name against her. And so he always is using it for selfish reasons and for his own power, never for any good really in the opposite sense you see Shobi who um, there's a specific instance she talks about where like a woman has come to a woman from her cricket team I think uh, had come to her door and like was going through domestic abuse and and then she realized oh I can use the Rajay name to protect her so then you see like this is a weapon that I can fully use to my advantage to help people Brahm uses it to really just cover up mistakes and use it against people and Shobi is using it in such a positive light to help so many people beyond herself. Absolutely. After that, we sort of learn that he, he was basically sent away to rehab, which is interesting because you get the sense from reading it that he was sent to rehab in like Switzerland and Paris and then he like started his restaurant. So like she was in India and he was abroad in Europe for a long time. And you kind of get the sense that he was sent to a clinic for his alcoholism. I'm sure people saw the domestic abuse as a symptom of the alcoholism when like I feel like the entitlement and the wealth and the freaking get out of jail free card was just as big a player as alcohol when he did these things to her that he returned it says he was full of apologies as the remorse were all it took to erase evil so it's like he would do these things and then go away and be like i'm so sorry i didn't mean it i love you i want to create a great life for us and then like he thinks it's enough and i don't think he even would say like those latter the latter half of those things like i don't think he loves Shobi. I think he, you know, she's just someone who he decided to pick. She's kind of stuck with that. I don't think he has any real feelings towards her. And I think he's kind of acknowledged that too. Because I mean, given the fact that he was never going to wear any symbol of their marriage, like wear a ring or anything shows he wasn't going to be faithful to her. Why choose her then? Like why get married? But it feels like maybe it was something that even he had to do to like keep his fortune. So he was like, cool, I'll just like kind of check this off and I'll keep doing my life the way I've been doing it. 
But then when he has someone like Shobi, who is going to fight against him and stand up to him, he's like, no, 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 (laughs) you're not going to do that. And like, again, uses Rajai power against her. I think he loves the power that he has over her. Remember that chapter that was like his proposal? Like she was shocked because he's been sleeping around all over Europe. You know, she thought that he saw her as like a little sister where he would come back and they joke and he'd talk about his conquests and everything else. So she was shocked when he came back and proposed marriage because she didn't think that he saw her that way. When the truth of it is they just had fundamentally different ideas about what a marriage is. He was basically looking for his life to not change, and then he could just come back and have somebody love and adore him. And I think he really hated and resented the fact that Shobi kept fighting back. Like, from the get-go, he's like, I want to marry you. And she's like, yeah, I heard that from my dad, and I just want to say that I don't want to marry you because I love someone else. Like, what? First of all, the fact that she would love anyone else is completely amazing to him because he's just like, he's so in love with himself, he can't imagine someone not falling at his feet. But the fact that she like wanted someone who was like not one of them, who was like not wealthy, not Hindi, not from one of these families, he was just like, well, no to that. You know, like that was his first, I think that he's just like so deeply, inherently powerless like because he's got the name and that's all that's it you know he uses it and he abuses it and he abuses others and he abused Chobi and he abused Ashna and it's just so sad that Ashna has been blind to his abuse for so many years because he used that power to trick her into thinking that Shobi was the bad guy kind of plays into some of the decisions that Shobi then made in raising Ashna because she was like, I want to raise her to never have to question her own strength and never question her worth. It says here, Shobi had always sworn that Ashna would make her own choices no matter how young, that she would hone her spirit, her own spirit as she wished. I think that's great. I think that's great that Shobi really wants that for Ashna to kind of have that freedom from such a young age. But also I think it's maybe too much freedom for a kid and especially as a kid who is of is in Ashna's case divorced parents of like having to make big decisions of like do I go live in India do I stay with my dad from such a young age those are too big of a decision in some cases to make Ashna was unintentionally hurting either parent when she made those decisions you know if she decided to stay with her dad then Shobi saw as like oh no I'm losing my daughter and if Ashna decides to be with Rico her father then feels betrayed about like what kind of decisions she's making so sort of that that freedom in decision even though it's great from such a young age I think like too she needed that guidance from a parent too she needed someone to like help her and be a parent honestly but she really didn't have that with either one of them and we find out that when Brahm was on a hunting trip he killed an endangered animal and that got him arrested you know the Rajes had been paying to cover up his messes for his entire life And because this was a repeat offense, they couldn't cover it up. So, like, he was publicly shamed and, like, for going to jail. Probably, like, not even among their circles for, like, killing an endangered animal, but for the arrest. And so they sort of, in order to escape the media attention, took solace in America. And that's why they, like, ripped Ashna away from her life there. Because remember, she her life didn't start in the Bay Area. Like, it was nice that her family was already there and her cousins were there. They essentially had to go to the Bay Area 
with their tail between their legs. And Shobi saw how this affected Ashna. It's just so crazy that she still blames herself for so much. And then that's kind of when Omar comes back into her life. I mean, I guess the timing makes sense, right? Because like, if this was like the one thing that the Rajas couldn't completely cover up, then maybe some of like the actual truth started to surface. And maybe that's where Omar was able to kind of parse through everything and be like, okay, what's actually going on? What's going on with Shobi? What's the truth behind that? And then be able to reach out to her and understand her truth. And that's how they found their way back to each other. So it's really like Brahm messing up again and again is finally what allowed Shobi and Omar to be together again. But in that same way, it's like, it's also that decision that drove Ashna to be thousands of miles away and how their relationship changed forever as mother and daughter because then Ashna stops calling her mom she stops calling her mom and it forever changed their relationship so that's kind of the note that we end this chapter on you know like we're done with this flashback we've seen how you know just kind of the genesis of Shobi's marriage to Brahm and how it was very scary for her to be pregnant but how she doesn't regret Ashna for a single second and kind of what happened after. So I'm really curious, like, whose point of view we're going to see in the next chapters. These chapters were, like, probably the most emotionally heavy, too. Yeah. So I, I feel like as much as this is, um like, rock bottom for, for Ashna and Shobi, it's also for us as the reader. Like, I feel like things are also only going to get better from here because Ashna, knowing the truth, is now going to get to heal. Um, and so is Shobi. Like, they're going to be able to maybe reestablish their relationship. And, you know, we still have... The rest of the cooking competition to see play out so you know hopeful for what's to come next whose point of view will we see next will ashna forgive shobi forgive brahm and really like above all forgive herself for trying to absolve everyone of the sins that they've committed against her like is she gonna stop blaming herself i feel like that's one of the big theses of the book i hope that we get to see more of that in the next chapter 